McCoy? Dix? That you, man? His throat was tight. Hi, bro, said a directionless voice. It's Case, man. Remember? Miami. Yeah, Joe boy. Quick study. What's the last thing you remember before I spoke to you, Dix? Nothing. Hang on. He disconnected the construct. The presence was gone. He reconnected it. Dix, who am I? You got me, Jack. I don't know. They've taken to buying fresh spaghetti. Oh, fresh spaghetti. Our friends have got real jobs. That's. I used to have one of those. I used to be able to afford fresh spaghetti. Uh, and then I was like, "This is boring. I want poverty yes. and the life on the yeah, road." Exactly. I want. To, I want to make my own time. Footloose and not fancy free. <laughs> Footloose and funding funding free. Like, okay, so fancy free. Walk me through this one. Because, like, I think if I were to make a joke, I would say footloose and fancy full. Fancy but full, right. that doesn't suggest what I'm after at the moment, which is footloose and starving. Um, right, and, right. Well, I think uh, fancy free is, it seems to be sort of like without a mm-hmm. care. But you're right. It almost seems to indicate the opposite. Right. It, fancy full, which I feel like would be the opposite of fancy free, seems to be like the same idea. Yeah. Well, okay, so I I believe that the word fancy, so it can mean sort of high end, right? Like like uh, expensive, mm-hmm. but it also can mean I I, I have a fancy, For, you know, I have a fancy um, that that one of these days I'll own a general store in mm-hmm. Vermont, um, almost like a fantasy. I wonder if it's the same origin, um, and so I think a fancy can also mean something like a dream or a um, spring, the time when a young man's fancy turns to love when a young man uh, it can mean interest and attention so maybe in the sense of interest and attention if you have if you're fancy free it means that you have no particular cares mm. at the moment that, that there's nothing grabbing your attention there are no the, the young man's fancy has not turned to anything in particular which is a form of freedom let's see so perhaps we've Perhaps we've done some etymology here of that particular phrase. Yeah, your, uh, let's see, your life on the road, your your poverty life on the road, do you feel like you've hit fancy free? No, no. Uh, it is every bit as stressful as life in a city, just in different ways. Mm. And in some, in some ways, in refreshingly different ways, if that makes sense. It's sort of like going camping. It's not like you're just relaxing all the time. No. You know, you're, you're kind of always working. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, like you're kind of worried about the weather because your campsite could wash away and things like that. So there's always something breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it is, I would say, like the stressors of life on the road are a nice diversion from the stressors of life in a city. Mm-hmm. Things are a little bit more unreliable. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But, you know, there's also a little bit more adventure. And... I'm also in a little bit more control over how I choose to spend my time on a day-to-day basis, too. It reminds but me then, of uh, my, my Alaskan friend, Damien, who uh, came back from a trip to, uh, to Alaska once. And uh, I said, uh, how was your trip? He said, it was great. We got two flatbeds stuck in the snow, and we had to mm. hike home and get some snow machines. And we took them back to get the flatbeds out of the snow. And we got the snow machines stuck in the snow, too. And then yeah. we had to go and get a truck. And we brought a crane out there. And we used the crane to get everything back out of the snow. Yeah. Yeah. 
Alaska AF. Uh, yeah, seriously, right. Um, yeah, should we get, I know that you have a little hard out, so maybe we should get into yeah. the, the topic yeah, at let's, hand. Yeah, let's, let's get into it. I am, uh, I am excited for this one, um, though perhaps not in the way that I was anticipating <laughs> being excited about this one, but um, yeah, everybody, uh, today on Upper Middle Brow, we are going to be talking about William Gibson's cyberpunk classic Neuromancer, which was published in 1984. Neuromancer may have launched the genre of cyberpunk, which feels kind of like noir mixed with Tron, uh, though I would also say that Blade Runner, which came out in theaters two years earlier, and then the source material for that movie, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which we will be talking about in a few weeks, are definitely part of this novel's DNA, at least in the setting and the feel of it. Uh, And some of the themes. Yeah, totally. Um, I think this is your first time reading this book. Am I correct or no? No, no. no. Okay, um, this is I've... not a revisitation. I was kind of hoping it was. No, it. it, it yeah, I. Um, I read it for the first time probably when I was eighteen or nineteen, um, around the time that many of my friends were into the cyberpunk tabletop role playing game, and so I mm. actually think that I played that game and read the Altel. R. Talsmorian cyberpunk manual first and this book was referred to as sort of a good bit of source material which is an interesting way to read the book because the world of the book was familiar to me because it had generally been sort of recreated in the game pretty faithfully Mm -hmm. in many respects at least things like cyberspace and constructs there was different language but um so so which is an interesting way to read the book and then I think I probably ran it read it again in my 30s too Mm -hmm. Um, so I think this is my third read, but I don't, you know, I don't remember it all that well, to be honest. There were moments I remember from the first read. I definitely understood the plot better in the second read. And I definitely, in this read, am picking up on many, many things that I did not notice in either read. Interesting. I think it's funny. We may have been reading the book for the first time at at basically the same time because you're a year or two older than I am. Um, I read it when I was 17. I remember exactly I was 17 because my dad and I were driving across country to pick up some antiques uh, that my uncle had driven from California to Montana, apparently Hmm. that providing the center point of the country. Um, Yeah, not really. No. But um, I was reading this as we were driving through Yellowstone National Park. Mm. Um, And I remember being obsessed enough with the book that I was kind of not paying attention to Yellowstone National Park. Wow. Um, And weirdly, also very similar experience. My way into this book was from the tabletop role-playing game Shadowrun, Hmm. not Cyberpunk, which I've never played Cyberpunk, but... Boy, did I play a lot of first editions uh, Shadowrun in hmm. the late '80s, and yeah, same same kind of thing. Very similar world. Um, there are deckers, people that jack into the cyberspace, the Matrix. Um, yeah. Again, yeah, different different terminology, but uh, you go on runs, which uh, uh, which is a word that gets used in this book to um, yeah. steal secrets from corporate arcologies. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing about cyberpunk is that you could do that. That was called net running. But then you could also play complete other sort of street crime sort Mm -hmm. of stories that had nothing to do with that, you know, where, you know, you're basically just, you know, a street tough, you know, hired to protect a rock star uh, or you're going to steal 
uh, fancy new piece of technology and not not using a net run, but a, uh, you know, just good old fashioned muscle and guns. Yeah. And and there's a lot of like cybernetic hardware, like Molly's uh, fingernails and stuff like that, you know. And one thing I remember about that game was that apparently the developers did not like the kind of concept of hit points from Dungeons Mm -hmm. and Dragons and particularly how characters get more and more hit points as they level up, which it's true. It doesn't. Why would your constitution improve as you become you know, a more skilled mage. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. So, so the, there were hit points, but everybody had more or less the same amount. Um, and it, it was really, really easy for your character to die. <laughs> as, I, as I recall, you know, just because it's like you basically you get shot, you're dead, um, yeah. you know, and it's not, you know, you listen to people play tabletop role playing games now and they're like, oh, yeah, you took three bullets and you take 40 damage. And they're like, yeah, that's bad. How many points do you have left? Oh, another 15. And you're like, OK, um, Something's wrong here. Something's weird here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, So that's one thing I remember about the game that was kind of surprising after having played a certain amount of D&D was that Mm -hmm. it was... And you actually... But in a way, it was good, though, because it sort of taught you as a player to try to avoid conflict and work the other more interesting aspects. Anyway, um, should we we get into our our recap? Yeah, yeah, let's, uh, let's do it. Right, so we meet Case, um, who is a former cowboy or uh, basically like a hacker, but somebody who goes into cyberspace, which is a kind of 3D virtual virtual reality representation of the internet, um, where he would then, using kind of 3D technology tools and viruses, steal data from usually corporations and sell it to other corporations. Uh, He's quite young. He's 24. And for two years, he's been disabled. He was stealing from an employer, got caught, and they essentially gave him brain damage such that he can no longer interface with the net anymore, which has left him depressed and more or less suicidal. Um, And so he's living on the streets of Chiba City, which is a kind of like expat city in Japan. Um, And... Um, he gets the sense that somebody is looking for him and he hears a rumor that they're trying to kill him. And after a little bit of cat and mouse, um, it turns out he meets Molly. Um, and Molly is not trying to kill him. Um, if she was, he would probably be dead uh, very quickly. Molly is a total badass, uh, probably my favorite character in this book. Um, she is similarly young. Um, she has cybernetic eye implants that look like mirrored shades. Um, and she also has razors uh, embedded, scalpels embedded in her fingertips, which she can um, retract or release at will and do a lot of damage. And she's a very, very skilled sort of assassin fighter type. Um, but she has no intention of hurting Case. She is recruiting him for a man named Armitage, who wants to offer him a job um, basically to steal something. We're not quite sure what at this point. Um, and Armitage says, yeah, I'm going to pay you some money, but the, the real reason you're going to want to do this is I can get your neural problem fixed. Uh, and Case is kind of pretending to be cool and disinterested, but he really, really, really wants to get his neural problem fixed. And so he does the surgery, um, and I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. Um, the first thing that happens after the surgery is that, uh, apparently case, yeah, (laughs) bow, wow. Yeah. Business time. Um, case and Molly just fall into bed together. Yeah. Um, kind of reprising a noirish kind of trope 
Um, and uh, they're off on their first job. They're going to steal an artificial intelligence that duplicates the kind of thoughts or personality of Case's former teacher, um, a character named Dixie Flatline. Uh, who is named so because he flatlined three times while jacked into the Matrix. And he's a Southerner. Um, he from is, the, yes. From the South Sprawl uh, near Atlanta. And his his real name is McCoy Polly. Uh, side note, his partner, the other guy who taught Case, is Bobby Quine, which I am 90% sure is a reference to Lou Reed's guitar player, Robert Quine. Uh, oh, wow. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, William Gibson is a music fan, and there are a number of little musical references in this books and, and others. And I know, I believe he's a fan of Lou Reed. Um, so that I'm guessing that Bobby Quine is uh, just a sort of little Easter egg reference to Robert Quine, who is one of my like three or four favorite guitar players. Also I played guitar that. with Tom Waits and um, on that Matthew Sweet record, Girlfriend, that came out in the 90s with that absolutely kind of ripping noise guitar solo. We will. Uh, we should make sure that we put a link in the show notes to uh, to that tune. Yeah. Um, the uh, we we get our first like sort of set piece of action as they break into a corporation to steal the Dixie Flatline construct is what it's called. Um, it's a really fun scene where Molly does kind of the wet work. Case is infiltrating the. Um, uh, the network of the corporation, and they also get some help from a local group, uh, the Modern... Panther Moderns. The Panther Moderns. Right. They're um, sort who... of like the Merry Pranksters mixed with the, the Weather Underground. Yeah, exactly. They do this sort of wonderful kind of like flash mob hysteria of uh, getting all the employees of the corporation to basically go mad um, and at the same time tip off the police that there is a riot going on at this particular corporation. And so these like these these poor, unfortunate employees who are sort of having seizures are being like foamed and like like beanbag shot uh and it's a perfect diversion for them to uh to steal the construct and get away which they do though molly is uh injured um we hear some stories along the way molly and case are kind of trying to figure out who their employer is in a very standard kind of tropey like who's employing us there's a there's another AI named Wintermute that may be Armitage's employer. They're kind of starting to figure out. And there is a rich space expat family named uh, Tessier Ash, Ashford? Ashcroft? Ashpool. Tessier Ashpool. Tessier Ashpool. Tessier Ashpool, comma, N-A, which is some N-A being something like LLC or something like that. Maybe it's like non-affiliated. I could see that as being like the word that would work in that particular. Yeah, there's some kind of they are both a family, but also a business entity uh, that largely lives. uh, The the, the principles of the family we learn are largely chirogenically frozen. And many of them live in space in an orbital sort of colony. Uh, And um, they seem kind of creepy. Yeah, they uh, the the way we hear about them is an anecdote where there is this artifact that is kind of a clockwork steampunk voice activated bust that a secondary character who owns a pawn shop. It comes into his possession, but then a ninja shows up that is employed by Tessier Ash 
pool. A, a vat-grown ninja. A vat-grown ninja um, uh, who takes the bust back and uh, kills the person who supplied the pawn shop owner with the bust. Um, they go to Istanbul to pick up another member of the team. This first third of the book is really the like getting the gang together. Yeah, getting a the real, gang together. A real charmer, Mister Peter Riviere. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, not uh, yeah, definitely like on the sociopathic spectrum, oh, um, but has so the creepy. ability to do these kind of like illusions or hallucinations or manifest little uh, visual tricks um, all all around him. Um, if we were in D anD D, he would be an illusionist. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they head to space um, and they meet up with some space Rastafarians on a ship called the Zion. Um, the colony case. is Zion. The ship is the Marcus they, Garvey. That's right. They end up on a tug called the Marcus Garvey. Um, Just wonderful. And uh, uh, Case decides that he is going to try to interact with a winter mute um, and uh, goes and almost gets, well, like does in fact flatline for about 40 seconds while he uh, interacts with a manifestation of Wintermute that is pretending to be somebody that Case knew in Chiba City. Case kills the hallucination with a gun that's there and wakes up. We don't really know what he learned. Um, and that is... Uh, and then, yeah, do you want to take us through the final bits of the first half of the book? Yeah, I think what we're starting to at least suspect about Wintermute is that he's hiring this team, including... Armitage essentially to free himself from a kind of slavery. Uh, it, or he, I keep saying he, maybe it should be, but Wintermute often appears as male characters. Um, but that doesn't, which is a, a kind of understandable thing for an entity to want to not be a slave, but at the same time, Wintermute does not seem at all entirely, say, good or innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, um, I think more is going to come later in the book that will make us question Wintermute as a, uh, a benevolent or evil figure. Um, but yeah, so, so they're kind of preparing to do the big run. I forget the name of the Tessier Ashpool sort of HQ. It's got some, some interesting sort of star-faring name. Like, Straylight? Like, Straylight, that's right, and and their their orbital colony, which I think is about a mile across, is um, Freeside, and then Straylight is sort of like their compound. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're preparing to do the run. While they're preparing to do the run, they're sort of studying up, trying to f- learn some more about Wintermute. They're starting to worry. Case and Molly are starting to worry that uh, Armitage. Uh, we learn a little bit about his backstory. He was a soldier who survived a botched mission in some war um, and was really used as a political pawn by uh, the Pentagon and some other forces um, and then was sort of given a new identity by Wintermute, it seems like. And we get the sense that maybe he's starting to go off his rockers. Case also, he is a drug addict. And one of the things the surgery did, not only did it restore his ability to jack into cyberspace, but it also made it so his body can no longer process the drugs that he was addicted to, like cocaine and amphetamines. But he finds some other drug, um, scores, um, meeting these two sort of young, bon vivant rich kids who live in this kind of space colony permanent vacation paradise zone. Uh, they all get high together. Um, 
Molly sort of scolds him, um, but then uh, one of the fa- the facets of his getting high is that he seems to have a rather impressive erection. Um, so I think there's more sex, and um, he's terribly hungover. Uh, there is a very creepy performance by Peter Rivera um, designed to, I think, sort of seduce one of the Tessier Ashpools, a woman named Three Jane. Um, Three Jane something, 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 Tessier Ashpool. Um, and it's a very, very creepy performance. Uh, Molly sort of disappears after that to prepare for the wet work of the run. Uh, Case is supposed to be preparing for the, I don't know, dry work, the cyber part of the run. Um, but he has another bender with his young friends. And after that bender, he goes home and he is pinched by the touring police. And that is the last thing that happens in our section. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. (laughs) And I would say that, like, I understood the first time I read this book, I probably followed about half of that. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, 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 I somehow followed the basic narrative. Um, but it is, um, you know, we get into this a little bit. I, with Case, at least at this point in the book, we have another hapless protagonist. Um, he's really just kind of doing what Molly and um, Armitage and apparently Wintermute want him to do at, mm-hmm. at this point. And, and so far, Case isn't really taking action, you know, in the way that a, a traditional protagonist might. And so really, as a protagonist, mostly what he is useful to the reader as is sort of a pair of eyes in which to absorb this wonderful, I think wonderful, world that mm-hmm. William Gibson has created for us. That's kind of my first question for you. Mm. Um, you know, I've got this question about uh, plot versus partaking. Mm. Um, I mean, when you're plotting anything, you have to have your protagonist do stuff. And the protagonist doing stuff has to result in action rising, tension rising, other stuff happening. And I wanted to ask you, um, and you already said, you know, Case is kind of a, a, a roving pair of eyes that things kind of happen to. Um, do you learn enough as a reader in the first half of this novel hmm. as a, since we are seated in a largely passive roving pair of eyes, do you learn enough about what is going on in this situation um, in order to keep your maintain your interest in a way that you understand what's happening? Mm. Well, a complicated question. And I think there's a part I would say I would say yes in some ways and maybe no in another sense. So in the yes sense, um, William Gibson does not really tell you about the world that he has created for you. The characters refer to things. There are little moments of exposition where the characters tell each other stories um, or they explain things to each other and you're able to pick up those things. But really, you have to be reading and thinking about every sentence. And I think when I was an 18-year-old and I read a sentence I didn't understand, I just kind of moved on to the next one. I was getting the general, okay, we're in Istanbul now. I'm not really sure why. Okay, we're, it seemed like we're in orbit. There's some Rastas here. I'm not really sure why. But... If you read carefully, I do think Gibson is doing a very good job implying the world if you're paying close attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most things are, I mean, maybe it takes a second reading through. It is dense in that sense. It kind of reminds me of, there's some Faulkner novel where he talks about some woman who 
used to kind of climb through a window and then like one week she couldn't fit through the window and then like a hundred pages or 200 pages later you learn that that's his way of saying that she's pregnant now uh which is very southern right we don't talk about such things you know but you know but if if you catch my meaning, she could no longer fit her belly through the window, you know, that that which I think is actually kind of wonderful if you're up for it. And I, mm-hmm. I think the joy of this book is building the world in your brain with the little hints that William, Gib- William Gibson gives you. So mm-hmm. in that sense, yes, I do think there's enough information if you're up for the fun of compiling the world. And in a way, it actually kind of makes me sad that I played cyberpunk the game before reading this book because I already kind of had the world built for me to some degree, but having forgotten a lot of that, the experience of reading the book this time is actually really fun because I'm kind of rebuilding the world and I'm also sort of seeing, oh, this is how we understand what a construct is. This is why he's called the Dixie Flatline. Oh, he flatlined and he's a Southerner. Oh, Tessier Ashpool, they live in Chirogenic, oh, Oh, this is what an orbital is. Oh, Zion. Okay. Yeah, that does relate to Rastafarian religion in a really interesting way. And it is kind of plausible that a bunch of Rastafarians would have created a kind of alternative to corporate hegemony of space, you know, sort of their own. So in that sense, yes, for me, it is enough. But to kind of move on to my next question, and I have a reading to accompany, um, maybe once we get to an answer is, what I'm not sure about, though, is whether we get enough information for there to feel like there are any stakes to this mm. book. Um, That's a good point, yeah. I, what are the stakes of this novel, and what do we want for Case? The stakes for Case are to kind of get his life back the way that he had it beforehand, before he was maimed, which is fine. I mean, I do mean, you care one way or the other? I mean, it's, he's just going to go like, oh, yeah. You return to a life of just like stealing corporate secrets for other corporations. That sounds really lovely. <laughs> I know it. It it, uh, it is. I mean, we're, we're really in a very tropey place in this book, and that's. I mean, it's been. Uh, let's see, twenty six, twenty seven years since I read this. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and um, which is hilarious. Uh, reading it in nineteen ninety seven, the book is you know thirteen years old. Next year, it's going to be forty years old, which is yeah. just you yeah. know the the way time passes is just crazy. Um, yeah, like it is a really tropey novel. I felt like I was kind of reading the Italian Job in some mm-hmm. ways, or mm-hmm. or you know insert any kind of like we're getting you back for one last job totally. kind of thing heat. It, yes exactly although heat i mean heat amazing yeah <laughs> so much fun yep. um which is great we should talk about heat at some point it's sort of the tropey tropiest of tropiness but uh still somehow works i love that your reading glasses have apparently been damaged they have been damaged it's unfortunate yes. but they're i'm holding them together um, you should really do some like masking tape, like eighties nerd chic thing. Yeah. Yeah. The stakes of the book are, yeah. Case returning to his prior existence, which feels a little underwhelming. Um, maybe his relationship with Molly is something that is important to him. Maybe not. And then is, are AI Wintermute something worth freeing from its electrical confines? 
I mean, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's the most interesting question. And and right. that uh, I like Molly very much as a character, but I don't mind not having her as the protagonist because it's really fun to observe her from Case's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I care about her in a way that I don't care about Case as yes. much, even though they have similar rough and tumble backgrounds. Uh, I don't know why that is, um, but I'm going to read a little bit of a passage that I think is William Gibson's efforts to sort of get at maybe stakes and also theme. Uh, This is Case remembering something that happened when he was 15 or 16, and he had a girlfriend at a time, um, and they're hanging out at a hotel room somewhere in the sprawl. One imagines like a cheap Jersey City hotel or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, This is one of my favorite passages that we read. Cool. Yeah. Are you comfortable with me reading it here? Oh, yeah. I'd love to. So there's a wasp nest, and one of the wasps stings the girlfriend. They're both drunk, and Case, uh, Marlene, the girlfriend, convinces Case to get the flamethrower that her ex-boyfriend left in the hotel and to burn the wasps. Uh, so he's got, this, he's got the flamethrower. He's out on the balcony. The air in the sprawl was dead, immobile. A wasp shot from the nest and circled Case's head. Case pressed the ignition switch counted three, and pulled the trigger. The fuel, pumped up to 100 PSI, sprayed out past the white-hot coil. A five-meter tongue of pale fire, the nest charring, tumbling. Across the alley, somebody cheered. Shit! Marlene behind him, swaying. Stupid! You didn't even burn them! You just knocked it off! They'll come up here and kill us! Her voice was sawing at his nerves. He imagined her engulfed in flame, her bleached hair (laughs) sizzling in a special green. In the alley, the dragon in hand, he approached the blackened nest. It had broken open. Singed wasps wrenched and flipped on the asphalt. He saw the thing the shell of gray paper had concealed. Horror. The spiral birth factory. Stepped terraces of the hatching cells. Blind jaws of the unborn moving ceaselessly. The staged progress from egg to larva, near wasp, wasp. In his mind's eye, a kind of time-lapse photography took place, revealing the thing as the biological equivalent of a machine gun, hideous in its perfection, alien. He pulled the trigger, forgetting to press the ignition, and fuel hissed over the bulging, writhing life at his feet. When he hit the ignition, it exploded with a thump, taking an eyebrow with it, five floors above him, from the open window, he heard Marlene laughing. So then he wakes up. I'm going to skip a little bit. In the dream, just before he drenched the nest with fuel, he'd seen the TA logo of Tessier Ashpool neatly embossed on its side, as though the wasps themselves had worked it out there. What about that passage suggests to you some more personal stakes for Case? Well, okay. The, putting the Tessier Ashpool logo on the wasp in the dream is a bit, um, I mean, like, it's like William Gibson being like, get it, <laughs> get it. These are uh, the bad guys. <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting because you could see a wasp nest as a thing of beauty. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this kind of magnificent colony of creatures that are perfectly adapted to create more wasps that have built a kind of factory that they live in through biological mm-hmm. means as a biology, as somebody who thinks insects are neat, I actually think that's really, really neat. But 
he's he's pairing it alongside Tessier Ashpool. Um, I also think it's interesting that that Case is being kind of pushed, pressed into this service of torching mm-hmm. the wasp, which kind of echoes what's happening in the present to yep. Case right now. Um, but I think you know it's meant to suggest that there's something really creepy and weird and kind of both organic and machine-like about Tessier Ashpool. And, you know, I think the theme of this novel is it, it's funny to me that the technological, the technologists and the technological enthusiasts love this book because to me it's very much a cautionary tale about technology. Uh-huh. This is a dystopia ruled by these corporations who using technologies like AI and chirogenics and cybernetics are behaving, I think we're going to see in the, the second half of the book, in really hideous mm-hmm. ways. Um, we don't necessarily know enough about Tessier Ashpool at this point to necessarily know why he would associate them with the Wasp, although that's going to become a little bit more clear, I think. But we do know that they are murderous um, and that they are a scary-ass corporation that will send ninjas after you if you steal from them. Um, and I think there is an attempt, though, here um, to set up some stakes for Case to sort of set up a sense of good and evil. Mm. Case might not be entirely good, but I do think we're getting a setup that the thing that he's being that he is opposing is evil. Mm-hmm. And I think we're also raising a moral question of where does Wintermute fit into all that? Is he a cre- is Wintermute the AI a kind of creature of e- evil, like a wasp in the wasp nests, according to this metaphor, or is Wintermute a kind of prisoner? of evil. Um, and, and I think that's a fascinating question. And what is life? What is alive? Can machines be alive? I think these are all questions the book raises in kind of a fascinating way. And, you know, this was Gibson's first novel, right? And maybe he could have found a way to have a protagonist who seems more invested in those questions. But I've read a lot of William Gibson, and often the protagonist is just sort of along for the ride. It's just kind of a way of being brought into the world. And we saw that in the Diamond Age. We saw mm-hmm. it in um, uh, the Lethem book, uh, the, uh, the, the Arrest. And I think what I concluded from the Lethem book is actually this could work. Um, mm-hmm. If what the protagonist is being brought through is interesting and worth looking at, and if there is a kind of story that takes place... Maybe you don't need the protagonist to have personal growth and take action and make decisions. Maybe, maybe there is an alternative to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I don't know the answer. I don't think I can really answer that until the second half. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think if you were to identify a weakness, it's that maybe you don't care as much about the protagonist as, as I would want to. Or maybe you don't know enough about the protagonist as I would want to. I would, my follow-up question is, and this is going to be hard because this is, you've read this three times now and yeah, spread out over a chunk of years. But if you didn't have the understanding, even the forgotten understanding of, you know, because when we read books, sometimes we forget what happens and, you know, it's, it's gone. But if you were reading this for the first time, would you know enough about Wintermute to come to the conclusions that you're coming to about it? Not Yet, but I think the hallucination with the SimStim, the flatline thing, would be intriguing. I think mm-hmm. it would be enough to raise the questions. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think you do get from that and from the other context um, that Wintermute is trying to free itself. Maybe from it. Maybe there, there are a couple other flashbacks that lap, 
happen later too so i might be kind of conflating them in my head um i think we get um we don't know we know that winter mute is brutal in its methods is willing to employ violence is willing to kind of take advantage of and maybe kind of psychologically torment uh our armitage um in a way so there's enough moral ambiguity about wintermute's tactics that raise some questions but at the same time the question of whether wintermute is a intelligence with sentience that i think any intelligence with sentience has the right to struggle against enslavement um and i do think that question is drawn in an interesting way and after that hallucination case has a discussion with dixie flatline and, you know, it's interesting. You refer to Dixie Flatline as an artificial intelligence, and I guess that's technically true, but not in the sense that we tend to use it today. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like a copied organic, it's like a duplicated organic intelligence. It's a duplicated organic intelligence, and in we don't have the sense that Dixie Flatline will ever behave, that Dixie, also that Dixie Flatline is changing. Um, he can gain memories, so he's kind of aware of what's going on, and maybe he'll change, but that if he is changing, he's changing in a way that is consistent with the human being whose brain was scanned. Um, and, you know, a recent Neil Stevenson book is all about this concept, too, um, and is sort of set in the world of a bunch of these construct intelligences kind of interacting with each other in a kind of cyberspace-like environment, creating a new world, and that's... Um, fall or dodge in hell and it's totally fascinating um so i think i think there is enough i think if you're paying attention to that hallucination and the conversations and reading slowly and picking up those clues uh i i think there is enough to raise those questions for me but I, it's hard to know because i did already yeah. kind of know that but i'll tell you i don't remember what happens i don't, I don't remember yeah. i i do i remember one thing about winter mute um, two things about Wintermute, and I think I can maybe spoil one of them, which is that I think at some point, in order to pull off this heist, Wintermute kills a child, I think mm-hmm. we learn, which is horrific. Um, and there's another thing I, le- I learned, I remember about Wintermute that I don't want to spoil, because I think it's a really important um, plot point <coughs> that might have yeah. something to do with the title of the book. <coughs> um, <laughs> uh, um, but um, but I, 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 I guess my answer to your question is yes, I think so, but it's hard to, mm-hmm. it's hard to account for my bias. Totally. I mean, there is, I mean, there's two, two things that you like bring to mind. Like, first of all, during the hallucination, um, Wintermute makes a distinction between Wintermute, the entity, which you get the sense that Case is talking to during the hallucination, um, and Wintermute, the mainframe, uh, which is kind of the thing that like attacks Case when he tries to make a pass at the AI in the matrix. You get the sense that the thing that comes after him is sort of partly Wintermute's entity and partly just the, the security frame right, yeah the security the, like, security demon or whatever um which is a fascinating idea anyway that yeah. there is a um you know in sort of a human context that would be as if our bodies and our fi- and our like mental processes were two like completely separable things which they sometimes are i mean think about it's like your immune system right mm-hmm. you know yeah Totally. Um, but I also think Wintermute, I think, in one of the flashbacks, alludes to there being maybe another lobe, you know, that Wintermute. Yes. And, and there's a discussion, I think there's a discussion of how 
one of the mainframes is in Switzerland and another one's in Brazil, and mm-hmm. they're linked through Straylight, through the orbital or something like that, so that this artificial intelligence might, where it's implied, might have multiple sort of personalities or yeah. multiple sentient lobes. Which is a, a theme that is coming up throughout the book. We know yep. that Armitage, uh, in a previous identity, was schizophrenic. Yep. Um, and then also about uh, AIs or subjectivities trying to escape enslavement, the Dixie Flatline construct asks Case to delete it yeah. when when this whole thing is done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those little pieces are getting um, thrown together. The reason I'm asking this... Um, this is the second chance, narratively, that Case has to ask questions of a important character in the book. Yeah. Uh, the first time, there's this really, really fun scene uh, where a, a bank of payphones uh, right. w- rings and Great it's Wintermute on the other end. Great scene. And then uh, Case hangs up on the AI. Um, Molly, very understandably, is like, why? And yeah. Case also, understandably, is like, that could have been anybody. Like, why am I just going to talk to somebody over a payphone? Or he's creeped out. Yeah, and he's also, he knows he's scared. But then he walks past the bank of payphones and each of them rings once as yeah. he's passing them, which is just like such a wonderful visual image. And I think one that has been stolen from this book, I have this other memory of like seeing that happen in some other movie somewhere. I feel like there's something like that in The Matrix, perhaps. Yeah. Um, which, by I the way, I think you are correct. I hope that the Wachowskis gave William Gibson some money. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I know that I know that they are they are overt in their um, in their the fact that they, they that this was a huge influence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but like Neo and Trinity, yes. minus the razors. Now, in a different plot, different story, different stakes, but just the image of Neo and Trinity. It's Case and Molly, you know, yeah, that, that, totally. that I mean, Molly and Trinity are very similar. To, I mean, Trinity doesn't have implanted uh, mirror shades, but she's always wearing them. She doesn't have razors. Uh, but other than that, they're basically the same person. Yeah, absolutely. It's a real it. it yeah, it's a very close. I, I think it's homage. It's not it's not a lifting or a plagiarism. I really do think it is like a loving homage to this work, which is central to this world i mean sure like blade runner prefigures it um some other works prefigure it for sure but i really feel like this is the one that brings a lot of these ideas together and is like here you go yeah um i mean you uh, you can always find an earlier expression of a particular idea but this is so i i mean we're seeing the seams but it's pretty well realized i think i love Um, that also to your point Case is kind of a moron sometimes. Like and and narratively too, you're like, why does he just shoot? And you and I don't fully understand why he does that. He is a little bit of a dullard, you know? Like you would kind of almost want a protagonist who's more curious about yes. the world. And he does totally. not seem all that curious. Um, that, but that, that's my problem with that scene. That if yeah. we have this chance, this is the second chance that he's he's connected with Wintermute, and he again turns it down. And th- this is th- this gets back to my original point, the rundown. Um, I've talked about the parable of the bad DM before. Yeah, this is another expression of the parable of the bad DM for me. And what happens with the, is sometimes is a DM is so excited about the story that he is going to tell for his players that he constantly withholds information. 
And it is a very frustrating experience as the player to be like, oh, we're just on this goddamn railroad. Like, we just have to partake in these series of events. And maybe at some point, when all of the cool things and all the cool set pieces have happened, maybe we'll get some story. Um, And I am finding myself frustrated mm. uh with that fact um i i but don't... don't blame william gibson it's case's fault it's not <laughs> gibson's oh, no. the dm he could have <laughs> talked to winter mute <laughs> he just like gibson gave him the chance to talk to winter mute twice it's the stupid character who didn't take the, the opportunity there's this great advice in dm circles that's like if you're forcing your players to do things stop it and write a novel instead and i want to be like no no don't because then this will happen yeah. <laughs> like you'll just yeah. take that same bad impulse into your plotting and and for me at this point there isn't enough organic agency for case like you're saying he's sort of being swept along in a series of events that he is simply partaking in and some of the frustration I'm having um, along with the sometimes opaque language um, is that very little that case does it like informs what happens next yeah and that is weird for but, for a narrative similar to john percival hackworth similar to journeyman it is weird but we're seeing it over and over again um and it, it's interesting too i wonder you know there's the, it, it's so one thing i noticed is without really trying to we did a kind of three book neo-noir series we're in the I middle know. of a three book <laughs> neo-noir series um and it's completely by accident so the last book the intuitionist is a neo-noir this book is a neo-noir for sure. Yeah. Uh, it really, really reminds me of this book and movie by W.R. Burnett uh, called High Sierra, which was then made into a Raoul Walsh film with a screenplay by um, a famous director, John Huston, um, starring Humphrey Bogart. Um, and it is about a old um, thief who is, who is busted out of prison uh, by a gangster and then basically the cost of being busted out of prison and being allowed to regain his liberty. He's bailed out, I should say. He's bailed out or he's lawyered out or something like that. But the cost of that is to go on a heist with some unsavory fellow criminals and a woman who he slowly develops an attraction and affection for. Uh, and it is very similar. It's very, very mm-hmm. similar to that. And, and what's, but, but what's interesting about that movie and that book is that character is being set up for a to make a moral choice at some point and and he is he's a thief and he's a robber and when violence is necessary he does it but he also has a good heart and it's the classic there's kind of two kinds of noirs right there's there's noir where you're on you're on the investigator side the police detective side the private detective side and there's also the noir where it's a group of criminals, you know, preparing to like a Jean-Pierre novel or Heat like we were talking about or Dog Day Afternoon sort of. Um, so there's two. Dif- so this is one of the latter. This is where we're relating to the criminals. And I think often the trope is the criminal has a code that has led to success in the past, but that code is also very limiting in terms of 
your life, your your the life that it's going to lead to. Uh, thief. Um, Heat is a great example, right? Robert De Niro's character is like, don't ever get into any attachment you couldn't turn around and walk out of in 30 seconds. He says that, that's his code. He breaks his own rule. Spoiler, he dies. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Because he breaks his own rule. Uh, Yeah, I said spoiler, so you could skip. You did. You did. uh, When did Heat come out? 94. 95, Five? 94, something like that. Somewhere yeah. like that, yeah. Yeah, maybe 96. Um, it was the same year as Casino, right? Because um, it was like a big one-two punch of these sort of like Robert De Niro gangster movies. At least I think so. Um, so so that that's wonderful. I don't, I don't, I agree with you. I don't really feel the same setup here, but um, do you mind if I do a reading, a couple of readings back to back? Go for it. We talk about the, the DNA, you know, do androids dream of electric sheep? I, on this reading, what I was really, really amazed by that I never had noticed before is how much this book owes to just like classic 1940s, 1950s crime noir. And I did a little research and William Gibson does, in fact, he talks about Dashiell Hammett. He doesn't mention W.R. Burnett, but um, I'm going to read you a little bit from uh, Neuromancer. Oh, did my bookmark fall out? So... Here's the Neuromancer reading. So they've stolen the Dixie flatline construct, which is so interesting how like William Gibson is so prescient in some ways, but doesn't seem to realize that like you don't necessarily that hardware does not matter that much. Yeah. There's so much fascination with the construct is like a disc or something or like a it, hard drive. It's or described something. like a uh, like an assault rifle magazine. Yeah, it's yeah. huge. It's enormous. <laughs> right. Where it's like I'm sure it could fit on a thumb drive, but um, yeah. So he's basically plugged in and he's communicating with uh, the flatline for the first time. He coughed. You know, I'm going to amuse myself by reading it like Keanu Reeves. Dix, McCoy, that you, man? His throat was tight. Hi, bro, said a directionless voice. It's Case, man. Remember? Miami. It was Australian. So Australian. (laughs) Miami. Yeah, Joe boy. Quick study. What's the last thing you remember before I spoke to you, Dix? Nothing. Hang on. He disconnected the construct. The presence was gone. He reconnected it. Dix, who am I? You got me, Jack. Who the fuck are you? Your buddy. Partner. What's happening, man? Good question. Remember being here a second ago? No. Know how a ROM personality matrix works? Sure, bro. It's a firmware construct. So I jack it into the bank I'm using. I can give it sequential and real-time memory. Guess so, said the construct. Okay, Dix, you are a ROM construct. Got me? But you say so, said the construct. Who are you? Case. Miami, said the voice. Joe boy, quick study. Right. And for starts, Dix, you and me, we're going to sleaze over to London Grid and access a little data. You game for that? You gonna tell me I got a choice, boy? Uh, do you remember the other time that that exact line is used earlier in the book? When Molly wants to partner up with Case, yeah. uh, and I think I actually have that marked. And and she says, Case looked at her. I got a lot of choice, huh? She laughed. You got it, cowboy. So here's my reading from W. R. Burnett. This is a book written and published in in 1940. I found it online. I, it was hard to find, but I finally tracked it down. So Mac is the gangster. He's broken Roy out of jail 
and he's explaining to him basically what he's what he wants in return. I want you to leave for California in a week or so, said Mac. Big job. Three punks on it. It needs a real guy. You're it. Yeah, Roy did not feel it at all. He had an all-gone sensation in the pit of his stomach, and he put his hands into his coat pockets so Mac wouldn't see how they shook. What he needed was a long rest, but Mac was the doctor. You're a sight for sore eyes, said Mac. Nothing but punks nowadays, little soda jerkers and jitterbugs. Think they know everything, too. One guy's name is Joe Hattery, done time for a filling station stick-up. The guy with him got so scared that when Joe yelled for the boys to reach for the sky, Joe's pal put up his hands, too. How do you like that? The other guy is a Mexican. It's his job. He's the night clerk at the joint. What joint? The hotel we're going to knock over. It's the Tropico Inn at Tropico Springs. Swank joint. We need a rod man and a boy who can kind of hold these jitterbugs down. Ain't one of them over 25. Punks. You're it. Tell me some more. Hell, you're in whether I tell you anything or not. I got to protect my investment. I'm paying all expenses and I want service. God, I love that dialogue. It's great. And it's so similar. And, you know, when I read this book for the first time, I was like, man, how did he write this dialogue that sounds so kind of forward and futuristic? And really, if you listen to Molly, if you read Molly's dialogue, it is like 1940s thief slang. Yeah. You know, and, and especially dropping the personal pronouns a lot. You know, big job. Three punks on it. Got got any choice? You know, like the, often whenever you can drop the personal pronoun, you do. And I, th- I think that is... I don't know if real criminals talk that way, um, <laughs> but it, it suggests that kind of toughness and also yeah. a kind of vulnerability, right? Like they, they're, they're so protective of themselves and their personality that they don't even want to use the personal pronoun. People do this on social media too, like spend a weekend in the Adirondacks, great time, as opposed to we spent a weekend or I spent a weekend in the Adirondacks and I had a great time too. And maybe that's just for shortening it. But I also feel like there is a little bit of like, I don't want to put too much of myself out there. Um, So yeah. And I I don't know, I would be amazed if Gibson has not read uh, this novel, you know, um, high Sierra or at least seen the movie. Um, I hadn't read the novel, but I had seen the movie. And when I was reading Neuromancer this time, I was like, man, this dialogue really reminds me of high Sierra. Yeah. I, the one thing I, that I went and just kind of dug through, um, the, the, the number of time, the amount of times that Gibson, um, turns to the past participle mm. as, as his sort of style of choice. Um, you know, so, uh, there's just so many ED verbs that are acting as adjectives, you know, clenched and, you know, just like all of these things throughout. And it does lend this very, he, he's stripping the subject, you know, the, uh, usually the pronoun subject out of these things. Yep. And it lends this very like hard nose clipped. Um, but at the same time, almost over full kind of language yeah. Uh, because a lot of the time we're getting rid of pronouns. And I think that's what sometimes contributes to some beautiful and lyrical sections and sometimes to some slightly over full and somewhat purple (laughs) prose uh, that feels, that feels to me a little overwrought today, but I think that I'm layering on like 40 years of tropes Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) like and 40 years of kind of works of art that 
that have turned this kind of scenario into something of a meme or something of a joke. Um, and I think I think this is probably something I want to talk about next time. Yeah. Um, I put it in the notes here uh, that I saw the notebook the other night for the first time in my life. Uh, I was watching it with somebody who had not watched it for about 15 or 20 years. Um, and I, uh, I got home yesterday and I Googled, is the notebook the worst movie ever? Um, and uh, I do want to talk about that later because I, I am having some of that similar experience with this book where mm. this was a book that I remember adoring and I am not adoring it as much on mm. this particular read through. I am finding it I, like, like, like I think it is probably clear to you and maybe our listeners that uh, I want a little more narrative control from our author. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple interview readings. I think I only need to do one of them because they're a little long. Yeah. That um, when I read them, I was like, "Yep, sounds about right." Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is a uh, this is an interview that uh, William Gibson did talking about how the book came to be and um, and what his experience was in um, in creating it. I still felt I was four or five years away from writing a novel. Then Terry Carr recruited me to write a book, which turned out to be Neuromancer. He was looking for people. He thought he had some promise. He'd offer them contracts and say, do you want to write a book? I said, yes, almost without thinking. But then I was stuck with a project I wasn't sure I was ready for. In fact, I was terrified once I actually sat down and started to think about what that meant. I didn't think I could fill up that many pages. I didn't even know how many pages the manuscript of a novel was supposed to have. It had been taking me something like three months to write a short story, so starting a novel was really a major leap. I remember going around asking other writers things like, assuming I double space everything, how long is a novel? When somebody told me 300 pages, I thought, my God! The interlocutor asks, what got you going with the book? William Gibson. Panic. Blind animal panic. It was a desperate quality that I think comes through in the book pretty clearly. Neuromancer is fueled by my terrible fear of losing the reader's attention. Mm. Once it hit me, I had to come up with something to have a hook on every page. I looked at the stories I'd written up to that point and tried to figure out what had worked for me before. Mm. I had Molly and Johnny Mnemonic. I had an environment in Burning Chrome. So I decided I'd try to put these things together. But all during the writing of the book, I had the conviction that I was going to be permanently shamed when it appeared. And even when I finished it, I had no perspective on what I'd done. I still don't, for that matter. I always feel like one of those guys inside those incredible dragons you see snaking through the crowds in Chinatown. Sure, the dragon is very brightly colored, but from the inside, you know the whole thing is pretty flimsy. Just a bunch of old newspapers and paper mache and balsa struts. <laughs> I mean, I, I find that very charming um, because this was such a successful book. So his willingness to be so open and humble about yeah. his sense of his weaknesses, I, I you know, I, I really appreciate that. Um, I mean, what's interesting is that I, I think I see the same weaknesses that you do. They don't bother me as much as they seem to be bothering you. And I think that's great. And, and yeah. I think the thing that he is masterful at that I really enjoy is... The, suggesting a a really vivid 
broad, powerful wor- world in a very economical way, in a surprising world, in a different world, and in some ways a horrifying world. It's what I think the first couple of Star Wars movies gets really right, mm, and yeah. then they stopped getting right. You know, like one of the moments that I really despise from one of the prequels was when you see the giant ships uh, when the war is starting and they're taking off in CGI and you're like and there's sort of like the depth of field is like a mile long in these half mile big starships and and that wouldn't have been in the early movies because they didn't have the technology to do it and those movies they they imply this vast world while mm. most of the time the camera is showing you something that's not very vast. Every now and again you see some spaceships, you know, but apart from that it's like okay, you're on a farm. Okay, you're in a bar. Okay, you're in a you're in a cabin of a ship. Okay, you can see another planet. And somehow from all that you construct this galaxy, you know, in your brain. But actually you're just seeing little glimmers of it. And I think that's what I like. I think this book is doing the same thing extremely well. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that Case is kind of a, a, a bit of a flop as a protagonist, except for it's working for me anyway, because I'm sort of enjoying viewing this world from his perspective. And, and it, I find plenty of delight in the book anyway. Is it yeah. perfect? Probably not. If you, could, if you could have all of the things that I'm saying that I like about it, Plus, Case is a satisfying protagonist. Now, that might be perfect. Yeah, I think, I mean, I really, I also really appreciate his humility in here because none of us know the things that we write. Like, it's just not yeah. possible. You, yeah. you can't do both. That, that's like, that is the central tension of trying to create anything. Um, and, and I really appreciate that and really, like, have a lot of empathy. I think you do, too, for, like, what the nature of construction is that like sometimes you do make something beautiful that it is like just that is flimsy and that's what's so wonderful about the original star wars movies it does have and like angels in america is the same way tony kushner says in the stage directions you should see the wires that the angel crashes through into Pryor's bedroom at the end which is why like the hbo version which is like so glossy is like very not true to the original intent of the script. Um, The thing that I think he sort of like, he sort of uh, shows his hand without meaning to is the putting a hook on every page. Yeah. (laughs) Writers don't put a hook on every page. You don't need a hook on every page in a (laughs) novel. No, maybe in a short story. You don't, you don't, you need a hook in the first couple of pages and then you need a hook periodically, but you're right. And then, you know, it is, this is a pulpy, pulpy book. And it yeah. descends from pulpy books, and there's a lot of unnecessary sex and lurid violence, and, you know, and it is, I mean, I kind of like the Case and Molly love affair works for me because it kind of gets at their sort of live hard, uh, live fast, die young sort of mm-hmm. mentality, which, and I, I find that it's like, yeah, these two would hook up. They're both beautiful people who are roughly the same age, and, like, they're probably both going to be dead in a year, so might as mm-hmm. well take some pleasure from this life, you know. I, I That does kind of work for me in a way, but, you know, the, the sex scene is pretty lurid. There's just, there's a lot of drug use. There's a lot of uh, unnecessary violence. There's, yeah. uh, you know, but there's also moments that are incredible, like when they're trying to capture Peter Riviera the first time, and he creates this like demon illusion to create a, you know, uh, a diversion so that he can escape, and that that's wonderful, you know. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of violence that sort of like Case couldn't see what happened next. Then there was a thud and a wet sound, 
then Molly comes back out. Those boys were trying to kill you, Case. You know, it's like, I feel like that happens like three or four times, yeah. you know, uh, where Molly just does something really nasty and wet to somebody and you don't really see what happens. It sort of happens off screen, you know, in a way. Um, and maybe there's a little more of that stuff than you need. And, and um, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think like I'm enjoying it so far. Also, oh, yeah. I guess the question, you know, is like, what are you going to be watching? Maybe this is the last question. What are you going to be watching for in the second half? Like, what are you hoping for? Hmm. I, I'm hoping that, I mean, this is kind of similar to a lot of our critiques of Stevenson. Um, I think that there are a lot of pieces being set up in the first half of this book. Even though we found that to be a little frustrating with Stevenson, we really enjoyed, we, we in fact enjoyed the pieces getting set up a lot more than the dominoes falling. Um, I think that we could see a little bit more of what the pieces getting set up means mm. in this particular book. Um, Linda Lee getting bumped off is only there so Case and Molly can start, like, you know, knocking boots. And that's a bummer. Um, yeah. I know that, you know, we don't ever really figure out why Dean killed her. Um, if that was actually true that uh, Dean killed I, her. I think it's also establishing, Case misses her, and I think we're it's, esta- it's there to establish a little bit of humanity, that he is a little bit sentimental, but then I think maybe it's also implying that he's a little bit afraid to get too close to anybody mm-hmm. like Molly because they might get bumped off. Yeah. But, but you're right, I think that's underdrawn, totally yeah. underdrawn. And I think that what I want in the second half um, is for the dominoes to fall perhaps in a more satisfying way than they fall in Stevenson in, in some of the Stevenson books that we read. Yep. If the first half of the book, the dominoes weren't set up with the same satisfaction of, say, you know, of Snow Crash, um, then I hope that the dominoes falling. And my memory of this book is that the second half is very action-packed in a very satisfying way. Yeah. And I that's what I'm hoping for. I just want to be included a little more. Mm. I don't think I'm being included as much as I could be. Mm. And that's my big that's the big thing that I want. Last question. If Terry Carr came to you and said, "Hey, here's $50,000 advance. I need a book in 6 months." Would you t- would you say yes? Yes. Me too. I mean, 100%. And right? it would be probably terrible, but I would yeah. do it. <laughs> but it would be, I mean, from innovation comes, uh, from limitation comes innovation. Yeah, but and it does raise, it does raise the question of like, maybe, maybe that was too soon for Gibson. Although, I think it was a little rushed. It feels it was, a little rushed. But at the same time, I mean, this is an iconic book, you know? Yes. Um, so you can't really argue with it. Although I wonder if... I wonder if some of the foibles of this book, because it was so successful, he never necessarily outgrew them. Because I do think with later William Gibson novels, you do see a lot of these kind of hapless, schlumpy protagonists. Um, Just sort of rich people come and hire them to do something kind of interesting, and they get dragged around in a fascinating world. Mm -hmm. Although the, the most recent ones... Less so. Um, but I've, I think I've read every novel he's written. They read very quickly. Um, and, um, you know, they, one comes out every two or three years, and I usually read them. But um, should we go to trivia? Let's go to trivia. Um, I believe I'm the host. I'm not sure. I think so. Okay. So, uh, which John Carpenter movie does William Gibson cite as one of the, not primary influences, but definitely made him think and piqued his interest in a way that shows up in the book. Was it A, Assault on Precinct 13, B, 
Dark Star, or C, Escape from New York? I'm going to say C, Escape from New York. You got it. Correct. It, I mean, there's certain, like the glider scene um, feels almost like completely lifted. And then also the dissolving sacks that Armitage puts in case feels straight out of us. And to the point where I even went and looked up when Escape from New York came out um, to see who influenced whom. Yeah. And it's um, like three years, I think. I think Escape yeah. from New York is like 81 or something like that um, or somewhere in that area. And, and definitely a very early we might say cyberpunk influential text, I think, yeah. too. Maybe not as not as important as Blade Runner. Uh, still very important. All right, so your quiz, since we're sort of running out of time. Okay. I personally love the Rastafarians in space, um, so much so that I've actually started reading Catch a Fire, the very well-regarded Bob Marley uh, biography um, that also goes a lot into Rastafarian culture and Jamaican culture and stuff like that. Um, I think it's great. Maybe we'll talk about it more next time. Um, so at one point, Molly is referred to by these two Rastafarian elders on Zion as the Steppen Razor. And that, it turns out, is a reference to something in Jamaican and Rastafarian culture. So is Stepping Razor A, a line from the Holy Pibby, which was a religious text of the Afro-Athlican Constructive Church, a black nationalist church which influenced Rastafarianism, A, so a line from the, the, the Holy Pibby, uh, about moral balance, uh, B, a reference to a Peter Posh song from his album Equal Rights, or C, uh, a vaudevillian comedy duo uh, popular in the Caribbean, um, two, the two members of the duo were both, in fact, uh, Caribbean, um, Steppen Fetchit and Razor Perry, often referred to as Steppen and Razor or just Steppen Razor. And uh, Steppen Fetchit was Bahamian and Perry was Anguillan. Um, and they were based in New Orleans, but um, would occasionally either tour or be heard over the radio in Jamaica. I'm not, I'm not sure which. Do you, do you need the choices again? Uh, Holy Bippy. Um, Peter Tosh song or Steppen and Razor, yeah. uh, a, a vaudevillian, bohemian, Anguillan uh, duo. You got it. I'm going to go with C. I really wish it was C. Oh, uh, wouldn't it be I great? did too. <laughs> wouldn't it be great if there was a... Steppen Fetchit is a real vaudevillian performer. Sounds like it, yeah. Uh, who was... Was friend, it A? Who, B. It's Peter ah. Tosh song. Steppen Razor uh, in the is is the name of a song, and basically in sort of patois or slang, a Steppen Razor would be kind of like a walking blade, um, mm, or a walking uh, uh, a knife fighter. So of course Molly is a Steppen Razor. Yes. I'd say in like American English, we'd be more likely to say a walking razor, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Steppen walking very similar. It's got a nice rhythm to it. Um, it's a pretty good song. You should check it out. Uh, I will. Peter Tosh's Step and Razor. So, nice. sorry. I think that's two songs that we have to put in the show notes. Yeah. Um, yeah, the uh, Robert Quine, uh, um, Lou Reed tune, and uh, yeah, and then this Peter Tosh song. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, Robert Quine, we'll have to find... There's not one particular song I know that he played on, um, but he played on a couple of Lou Reed's albums, so we can find something. He played on a Tom Waits album, I, I think, too. Um, and um, and the, the other song I referenced was Girlfriend by Matthew Sweet, but yeah. every, everybody knows that song. Um, but uh, yeah, that was fun. 
That was fun. That was a so, blast. Um, what uh, What is happening next? What is happening next, listeners? You're, we're going to talk about the second half of this book. And if all goes according to plan, uh, Bag and I will be in person at Higgins Beach uh, Bureau of Upper Middlebrow. Eastern Bureau of Upper Middlebrow. So look forward to that. Maybe we'll put some ocean sounds into the uh, episode. We will definitely do that. Um, Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the Cowboys and the Joe Boys of Chiba City. Music is by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by Chris Bag. You can learn more about us at UppermiddleBrow.com. And we could really use some more ratings and more reviews. Please do so. And thanks. Uh, we've had some more come in. Uh, no more reviews, but we, I've seen that there have been some more ratings, so our begging is paying off. Uh, and as a reminder, uh, Chris and I are both writers and editors, and we can help you with your writing, podcasting, or editing project. Uh, we're not cheap. We are reasonably priced, uh, and we're very, very, very good. Um, you can see some of our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, the creatively titled chrisbag.com and the also creatively titled jessedukes.com check it out uh, get the uh, check out those websites get in touch if you want to talk about how we can help you with your project it could be a big one or it could be a very small one please and do. we'll see and you next time on upper middle brow thanks for listening everybody next time on upper middle brow from small point production here get, the, get out of here ira I, I i just like your podcast so much i wanted no, to come and read the get credits out of here. Go okay fine to, go back to chicago uh, new york i live in new york but uh, anyway Good to see ya. Well, that was interesting. Ira Glass yeah. came. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. Crazy. I didn't know he lived in New York. Uh, yeah, yeah. They've been in New York for like 20 years now since they, oh, wow. they moved there to do TV. Um, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. But he loves Chicago, and he'll tell you all about Chicago. I bet he will.